Joppa, there was a disciple whose name was Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. She was devoted to good works and acts of charity. At that time, she became ill and died. When they had washed her and laid her in a room upstairs, since Lydia was near Joppa, the disciples who heard that Peter was there sent two men to him with the request, Please come to us without delay. So Peter got up and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the room upstairs. All the windows still beside him, weeping, excuse me, all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other clothing that Darkus had made while she was with them. Peter put them, put all of them outside, and then he knelt down and prayed. He turned to the body and said, Tabitha, get up. Then she opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her. Then calling the saints and the widows, he showed her to be alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. We read this morning from the Acts of the Apostles. We usually just shorten that to Acts. Uh, It's a book that we don't spend as much time as we spend on compared to the Gospels, but it's a text that is of great importance to us as Christians. Acts follows Luke. In fact, most biblical scholars will refer to Luke and Acts as essentially the same book, Luke-Acts. They're written by the same author, the evangelist Luke. Um, They're both anonymous technically in the sense that they're not signed. uh, Unlike Paul's writings and John's writings, uh, Luke doesn't give his own name in the books, but uh, the context is clear that this is Luke the evangelist. And you can think of Acts like a part two to the gospel according to Luke. The gospel according to Luke begins with the birth of Jesus and ends with the resurrection, and Acts picks up where the gospel uh, lifts off. Acts tells the story of the church. It tells the story of how the people who believed and affirmed the resurrection of Jesus Christ began to share that story with the world, began to heal the sick, began to give alms to the poor, and began to give sight to the blind. Both represent a letter that was sent to Theophilus. Both represent something that was intended to be read over the Lord's Supper, over Holy Communion, uh, and shared with one another, and talked with one another as a way of growing deeper in faith by understanding the stories. As we approach Easter, we've been digging through other stories of resurrection in the Scriptures. Up until this point, those stories have either been in the Old Testament, which is the case of Elijah and Elisha, or the stories of Jesus. Now, this is the first time during this series we've explored the topic of resurrection as it appears to a Christian. Because of Elijah and Elijah, of course, were Jewish prophets eight centuries before Jesus, and there really was not genuinely Christianity, a belief in the resurrected Jesus Christ, until there was a resurrected Jesus Christ, right? So even the stories of Jesus are still the stories of Jerusalem and Judea. They're not the stories of Christians. And so Acts represents for us in this series the first story we've talked about of resurrection occurring to the people of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now, my favorite commentary is the New Interpreter's Bible, and that's produced by the United Methodist Publishing House. It's, it's a feat of, of what connectionalism really does well. Rather than just being a little independent church, we exist as a network of churches and seminaries and theological think tanks, and as a result, we've produced uh, over the years different versions of the Interpreter's Bible, this uh, collection of, of works from seminary professors, And they actually title the the section of commentary that deals with 
what we read today, as back to the future. That's how they refer to Peter. Now, the New Interpreter's Bible was written in 1994. It was recently updated, but at $1,000 a set, I have yet to, to invest in the new upgraded uh, edition. But, uh, but the 1994 edition, of course, came right after the movie, Back to the Future, and so I guess they were throwing a little pun out there. Uh, but I want to read for you the, uh, the opening paragraph of uh, the commentary for Acts. He says, Acts weaves together different narrative strands of the church's mission to the end of the earth. If Peter's story is the warp of Acts, then Paul's is the weft. Both men are prophets like Jesus who execute their commission tasks in different places with similar authority and effectiveness. As Saul departs to prepare his future mission, which began right before what we spoke about, then the narrative resumes Peter's story, describing his mission beyond Jerusalem that also prepares for Saul's future endeavors. So that sets the scene of Acts and where we're at in this section of Acts. Paul is getting ready to leave, and as we read kind of further in chapter 20, we're reading the story of Peter. So first we begin, we'll begin with, uh, we'll, we'll kind of work back, because we'll start with the story of Peter and Tabitha. Tabitha was a name that wasn't familiar to Greeks, and so uh, Peter decided to, um, or Paul rather, decided to, uh, to give us that, uh, that translation, right? In Greek, her name uh, was Dorcas, and that's really unfortunate for English readers, all right? How would you like your legacy to remember it as being named Dorcas? Uh, but nevertheless, that was her name in the Greek. She was an almsgiver. She was known as someone who provided for those who had need. She gave to the poor, and she made, as, as we heard, clothes for those who had none. So the people are beside themselves when Tabitha dies. And Peter is called. Two people go out to Peter, and they say, you have to come. So Peter goes, and he does the same thing Jesus did last week in our story with, uh, with the widow's son in Nain. He looks at Tabitha and he says, get up. And he helps her up and she gets up and the people are impressed. And in, in, in fact, the, the scripture ends, uh, as lots of sections and acts ends, with many came to believe the Lord that day. What they had witnessed was the power of God being wielded by Peter. They had witnessed Jesus Christ doing something extraordinary through those who chose to follow him. Peter was doing something not just in the name of God, but in the name of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. Peter was establishing the power and strength of the triune God. The text tells us again that many in the region became to believe in the Lord. Now this resurrection marks a very critical turning point in Christianity. In that moment of Christianity, there was no separate worship. They came together for study. That was the crux of Christianity. The irony, perhaps, is that we've gone completely the opposite uh, in, recent, uh, in recent centuries in Christianity. Whereas early Christianity was all about Bible study, worshiping together and serving together. Uh, modern Christianity, worship becomes our emphasis, right? That's what we do the most of. And then a fraction of those who worship will then participate in further acts of study and, 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 uh, and, good mer- and, and works of mercy. But in those early days, they worshiped at the temple. There was nothing distinct about their worship. They worshiped at the temple, and they worshiped uh, with Jews and uh, alike. And they would come together then for the Lord's Supper. They would come together for communion and to eat and to have really a potluck. In fact, if you haven't made it yet to Tuesday night, I'd encourage you to come, if only to see kind of what that looked like, because we're doing uh, Acts Church, really is what we are. Uh, We're coming together, we're eating food, and we're talking about Jesus, and then we're breaking bread and having Holy Communion. But that was the format. But something began to cause a bit of a rift, and that was the Gentiles. You see, some of the apostles believed that anybody who became a Christian needed to adhere to the Israeli practices and beliefs 
and needed to maintain themselves as people who maintain those dietary laws and ritual laws. But Peter, Paul, and a couple of others really felt that the Gentiles were fine to come as they were. That the important part of Jesus Christ was resurrection for forgiveness of sins, establishing of an entirely new covenant, and the work that we're called to do afterwards. So what happens right after Peter heals Tabitha is he goes on to a man named Cornelius, right? We're not, we've not escaped weird names yet. Yeah, people with really unfortunate names. Oh, he goes on to Cornelius, and Cornelius is the very first recorded Christian who is not asked to adopt those ritual laws. He's a Gentile convert who is, by every account we have, the very first uncircumcised Christian. So Cornelius begins a tidal wave of conversions all around the Gentile regions of people, <coughs> excuse me, of people who began to experience the power of God in their lives, who began to come to understand Jesus Christ, and began to do so as people who were who they were, who were not asked to become something different in order to serve God, who were not asked to adhere to these old traditions. So what began as little distinguished became more and more different, and eventually began to separate more and more. Now, our next story from Paul is not as critical or pivotal, but I couldn't be in Acts and not reflect on the time that Paul preached somebody to death, right? So next time you're worried about a long sermon or something that goes a little bit too long, Paul arrives uh, to, to this house. Again, this is how church worked in the first century. You went to somebody's house, you ate, and you talked, and you shared stories, and you debated, and you wrestled, and you started to figure out what it is that God wanted you to do because for Christians then and Christians today, we've all got work to do. We've all got a, a purpose that God has established for us, and our job is to figure out what that is. So Paul sits down, and he decides that he's leaving to go on to his, his ministry, which means that it would be a great deal of time, or perhaps never again, that he would again meet and dine with these people. So he decides that he has to give the mother of all sermons. He has to get it all out there. So he arrives during the day, <clears throat> and they begin to break bread, and it continues. Now Luke is great. Luke is a friend of Paul. He traveled with Paul, and he makes no apologies about saying that Paul preached on and on and on and on until after midnight, right? And he's still going, right? After midnight, he's still going, and there's Eutychus, a young man. He's up on the third floor in the rafters, right, of this house. He falls asleep, and then into a deep sleep, right? Luke, uh, in Acts, you know, takes the time to, like, create a distinction there. First he falls asleep, and then into a deep sleep, right? He really wants us to understand that Paul has yet to shut up, right? And then Eutychus falls all the way from the third floor onto the ground, and he's, the Bible says, picked up dead. He's picked up dead, right? He's gone. Now, the resurrection that happens here is usually attributed to Paul, and it's really interesting because Paul is so busy talking that he forgets to even use the special words that everybody else uses, right? There's no Eutychus get up. There's no prostrating himself over Eutychus and praying for him. <laughs> he just looks over and says, he's fine, and he goes on to preaching, and Eutychus gets up. Now, I'll have to admit, a, a perhaps sacrilegious and cynical part of me wonders if they weren't so sick of Paul that they said he was dead so he'd shut up. I don't know, <clears throat> but it certainly is not as impressive as the other stories of resurrection. But nonetheless, the Bible says he was picked up dead. Paul says, no, he's fine, and he decides, okay, I'm fine, and he gets up, and Paul continues on until the next morning. Paul was excited about what he had to share. 
Paul was excited about this gospel of Jesus Christ, of this idea that someone came and lived and died and then was raised again that we might have life too that we might have the opportunity to experience the grace of God. Paul was ready to to embark on a a journey to the Gentiles, a people who had been told that they didn't belong, a people who had been told that God didn't come for them, that they weren't welcome to convert to become a part of God's people. Paul was going to them to tell them that Jesus Christ came and changed the rules, that the gospel of Jesus Christ was alive and well, and that they too were welcome to be a part of God's people. But before he does that, Paul literally preaches a guy to death. So just remember that. Keep that in the back of your mind, right? Next time someone needs a a fun Bible factoid, just remember that Acts contains probably the world's first and hopefully one of only lethal sermons. But as we approach the close of our Lenten season, I hope that we have spent this time preparing. Preparing our hearts to do good in the world. Preparing ourselves to go forth and to serve and sharing the message of our risen Christ with the world. The early Christians were bursting with passion for God, bursting with a desire to let the world know that Jesus Christ loved them. Early Christianity spread like wildfire. We talk today about how exciting it is for a church to add a family. Well, in in the time of Acts, in a day, they might add 1,000. In a day, they might add 10,000. In that time, we get excited because they spread Christianity throughout the world. One of my favorite examples of of Christian evangelism is Rome. And the reason Rome is so important to me is because it was Rome, it was Rome's cross that Jesus was hung on, right? And it was Rome who told the Jews (coughs) that they really ought to be worshiping Caesar. And it was Rome who persecuted the Jews and extorted them for money. And then it was Rome, a few centuries later, that became the seat of Christianity. That became the place where Christianity began to spread to Europe and to the rest of the world. Now, Rome wasn't perfect. No generation of Christians ever has been. But nonetheless, their conversion of their leaders and their people was the work of people who loved God too much to be silent, who couldn't stand the thought of not sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with every person they met, even in a place that would kill them, even in a place that would execute them. Many Christians were martyred by Rome, who would then later become the seat of Christianity for centuries. John Wesley is the founder of Methodism, the founder of our denomination, and he kept a journal throughout his whole ministry. And, uh, you know, we, I, I, I've talked a lot about the ending of John and how it tells us that the gospel records just a fraction of what happened with Jesus. Well, I wish we had this for Jesus. I wish Jesus had kept a journal that we could just read every day of his life, and we don't have that. But we do have uh, John Wesley's journal, which is a very interesting read of what life was like for a Methodist in the 1700s. The thing is, John Wesley was not popular in his day in England. Now, he was a well-respected academic. He was an Oxford professor, and he would contact churches, and it was no big deal for him to send a letter to a church, say your church, right, if you were St. George or St. John or St. something, and and say, hey, I'm going to come and preach at 2 o'clock, and they would put it on the bulletin board, right? Okay, on Tuesday at 2 p.m., Oxford professor John Wesley is coming to give a talk. And this is what he would write in his journal. Preached at St. George's, asked not to return. Preached at St. John's, kicked out. Preached at St. This is, this is true, this is an actual quote. Preached at St. Something Else's. The deacons had a special meeting. I cannot return. <clears throat> I don't know what St. Something Else's was. I don't know if that was rhetorical or he actually forgot. 
But that same journal entry ends with preached in the field, 10,000 in attendance. John Wesley began the idea of these field revivals because the churches wouldn't have them. Because the message that John Wesley preached was straight out of the Gospels, but it had been forgotten by the church. It was the message that everybody was supposed to be a part of God's kingdom. Now, for the first century Christians, the debate was the Gentiles. Were the Gentiles welcome in our churches? Were the Gentiles welcome to break bread with us? Were the Gentiles welcome to serve God with us? For John Wesley in his day, it was the people who didn't exactly fit in. The 1700s was the height of the Enlightenment, the height of people rejecting the church. And the church, uh, at the same time, had decided that it was only for clean-cut, well-dressed people. And so if you weren't well-dressed, you weren't in church. If you were drunk, you weren't in church. If you were in prison, you weren't in church. You weren't worthy of God. If you were poor, if you were homeless, if you had any of these struggles in your life, the decision of many in the church was that you were not welcome. But John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, did all sorts of things that tick people off. He went to prisons. And now, when you think about prison ministry, he didn't go to prisons just to evangelize. He did. But he didn't go to prisons just to hold Bible studies. He did that too. He also brought them bread and clothes and blankets and paper to write on and books to read. And then infuriated people. Prison isn't supposed to be comfortable, John Wesley. And John Wesley said, well, look, human beings are supposed to receive these things from Christians. If they don't have them, they get them from us. It's simple as that. It doesn't matter if they're in prison or not. People who were swimming in debt, people who had, were society's fringe, those were the people John Wesley wanted to reach. Those are the people that we're called to reach today. Peter did something extraordinary, and as a result, the people in the community said, whatever that was that did that, whatever would take Tabitha and convince Tabitha that what she should spend her whole life on is taking care of the poor, and then whatever would have such power that it would raise her from the dead, We have to have that. We have to be a part of that. When Paul travels the world and the Gentiles say, what would cause a man to leave his comfortable home, to put himself at risk of death and imprisonment, just to tell us about Jesus? This Jesus must really be special. Every day in our lives, we make decisions on whether or not we're going to share this most incredible story we've been given. Pew Research, uh, once again, the same numbers we're hearing year after year after year. Uh, Their most recent poll was, would you go to an Easter service if someone invited you? 80% said yes. Now, this was a a, a poll of people who were not planning to attend an Easter service. So out of 100 people who says, no, I'm not going anywhere to Easter for Easter, 80 of them would say, if someone would invite me, I'd go. Who will we invite? Who will we share the story of Jesus Christ with? And who will we encourage to come with us to celebrate the most incredible story the Gospels have, the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, these last several weeks, we've been kind of breaking down these stories of resurrection. And of course, you know, spoiler alert, sorry, but uh, Easter Sunday, we're going to culminate this series with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means. It's the most profound and important story ever told. It's the most important aspect of our lives. But it is still Lent. Lent is nearly over. Holy Week begins very soon. In some Christian traditions, not not typically our tradition, but in some traditions, for example, with (coughs) Anglicans and Episcopalians, this Sunday is called Refreshment Sunday. And it's a one-day cheat day, all of Lent, to, to take back what you gave up with the idea that after you've eaten that chocolate or gotten on that social media website or whatever it is that you gave up for Lent, you've done that on one day, 
that then you'll renew your practice of Lent and be reminded of it on Monday and start it anew heading into Holy Week. <clears throat> now, whatever your own traditions and practices of Lent are, I would encourage you to take today, to take some time today and be encouraged to shore up and strengthen your own practices in Lent. We're on the home stretch now. Holy Week is very, very soon. Blink your eyes twice and it'll be Easter already. <clears throat> but friends, as we approach that time, as we approach that most the, the Super Bowl Sunday in church, I'd encourage you to spend time in love with God, praying about your Lenten practices, praying about how you can draw closer to God so that like Tabitha, like Peter, like Paul, we can be so excited about what we've been given that we can't wait to share it with the world. Amen.